Numbers chapter 6. Numbers chapter 6. Now, if you were here last week, you know that we just finished chapter 4, which means we're skipping a chapter. Numbers chapter 5 is something that I really want the whole fellowship to hear. I believe everybody needs to hear as much as possible. And so we're going to talk. We're just going to study through Numbers chapter 5 on Sunday morning. But tonight is very special. Um, What we'll talk about in number 6 is peculiar to those who would go deeper. Those who would desire literally ministry with their lives. Maybe that's not full time. Maybe it's not, you know, becoming a pastor. Maybe it is. But for those who would say, from where I stand right now, I want a closer walk, a nearer walk with God. You might say, well, isn't that every Christian? I I would hope so. I would hope so, but the reality is the distractions around us tend to slow that process down. We tend to be a little bit like Levi at Shechem as opposed to Levi at Sinai. We talked about on Sunday how Levi the man was bearing the sword at Shechem in Genesis chapter 34, taking revenge, and then how Levi the tribe also bore the sword at Sinai in Exodus chapter 32, and the similarities are obvious in those two situations. The sword is unsheathed and wrath was unleashed and guilty blood was drawn. But the unmistakable difference all had to do with the will. The will. Levi at Shechem was self-willed. Levi at Sinai was God-willed. And I truly think that, that is, that's what we're striving for in our Christian life, to become less and less self-willed and more and more God-willed. And listen, you can become a very self-willed religious person. Your entire faith can be about the self-will. It can be about accomplishing things seemingly for the Lord, but really what it's about is, is how the self looks, how the self comes off to other believers, other Christians. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about being God-willed, which means you're even doing things that you're not sure you want to do, but you know the Father wants you to do, and so you're there. But you're listening to Him as opposed to yourself, that you're asking, God, I want to hear your voice, not my voice. I want to do what you want me to do, not what anybody else wants me to do. God will. It's being able to join Jesus at Gethsemane when he said, Luke 22:42, Father, if you're willing, remove this cup from me, yet not my will, but yours be done. Or joining Jesus with his last breath at Calvary when he cried out, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. Which he didn't just make up on the spot, by the way. This was scripture. He, Jesus, being the word, was so full of the word that as he taught, as he spoke, as he shared in his life, so much of what just came out of his mouth, we see his Old Testament quotations. Why? Because he's the word. And the word in the Old Testament and the New Testament, it's all the word. It's all still God's word. And so even on the cross, in his last breath, he says, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And Psalm 31 verse 3 says, For you are my rock and my fortress. For your name's sake you will lead me and guide me. You will pull me out of the net which they have secretly laid for me. For you are my strength. And indeed that's exactly what happened to Jesus. God pulled him out of the net that they secretly laid for him. He pulled him out of the grave. 
Jesus was resurrected, Psalm 31.5 goes on to say, Into your hands I commit my spirit, which is what Jesus said. My spirit is in your hands, Lord. You have ransomed me, O Lord, God of truth. And this is how I want to live. This is what I'm, I'm shooting for. To learn how to be God-willed as opposed to self-willed. But unfortunately, the wilderness is all about the will. That's the place where the will becomes very clear. Where the will becomes obvious. In the wilderness. Now it's strange because I've, I've noticed as we've been studying through the Bible how God seems to apply what we're studying to the season of this church, of this fellowship. We started out in Genesis, the book of beginnings, and the church was in its beginnings. In the Exodus, there was a sense of moving out, things happening. Leviticus, talking about holiness and our need to pursue such things. Well, now we're in numbers, and I hesitate to even consider what's going to happen. Because numbers is the book of the wilderness. Oh no. (laughs) What does this mean? And yet it's in the wilderness where the will is defined. Where the will is shaped. Where the self-will, by the way, tends to want to come out. But where God's will can be understood and learned and can be formed in us. Very powerful verse. Psalm 106, verse 13. Tells us they soon forgot His works. They waited not for His counsel, but lusted exceedingly in the wilderness and tempted God in the desert. This is talking about the people of Israel. Looking back at what we're about to go into as we study Numbers, as we're going to look into the children of Israel in the wilderness, we're going to be studying these things. The psalmist is saying they forgot His works. They didn't wait for His counsel. No, they rushed right ahead. Seems odd, but they lusted exceedingly in the wilderness. It was in the wilderness where, man, all of their fleshly hungers, man, it came out. And they tempted God in the desert. But this is the stunning verse, Psalm 106.15. And God gave them their request, but sent leanness into their soul. They got what they wanted. They got fed. He cried out for meat. God sent quail. In fact, you'll see in Numbers, he sent so much quail, he says it's going to stuff them so full it's coming out their nostrils. And that's a biblical quote. Pretty interesting. I'm going to give you what you want. If this is what you want, I will give it to you. And how often does God do that in our lives? We cry out, this is what I need. This is what I want. This will satisfy me. This will make me happy. And God goes, okay, here you go. But what ends up coming with that is a leanness of the soul because self-will feeds the hunger of the flesh whereas God's will feeds the hunger of the soul self-will leaves me empty God's will fulfills me completes me absolutely so what is God's will for my life what's God's will for my life for, for each of us well remember first and foremost God wants you saved and we're at that point. I mean, I make that assumption with each of you here Wednesday night. We're, we're saved people. Israel was a saved people. The moment God pulled them out of Egypt, they are that picture of a people who have been ransomed, who redeemed, saved. It's interesting as you go through the books of the Bible, you see the way God lays these things out. In the book of Exodus, this picture of salvation. And then you move on into the book of Leviticus, and it's this picture of worship, which is so much often what happens with Christians. 
We start out saved and then we enter into the place of worship. But it's the next place, it's that wilderness wandering that God wants to really shape and work on us. And a lot of people get stuck back in Leviticus, you know, with the worship, the priests and all the sacrifices there. They kind of stay there. They don't want to move forward. What happens after salvation? After we're saved? What comes next? The book of Numbers starts out, the first four chapters anyway, with organization. It's the reason why a lot of people will read the first few pages of Numbers and then kind of turn it off and try and move on to some other book because there's so much of the listings and here's what the duties of the priests are, the Kohathites and the Merorites and the Gershonites. We talked about those last week. It's all this organizational stuff, but that's what God does first. He wants to get our lives organized and then purified and then he wants us consecrated and all that's going to happen in this book before they hit the wilderness. So far in the book of Numbers we've seen this organization. This organization. Have you ever heard someone say, and I know you have, I'm a Christian, I'm just not into church. Or, I dig Jesus, I just don't need that organized religion. I don't want organized religion, I just want to flow with God. You know, I don't, I don't want the organization Guess what? God is organized. In fact, I don't think you've ever seen a more organized person than the Lord. As we go through the scriptures, this is one organized Lord. An incredibly organized deity. And what he's laid out and what he's performed and what we even see as we go through the Bible, unbelievable organization, incredible plan. All laid out ahead of time. There's no surprises with God. As as someone said on Sunday, God has no plan B. You said that, didn't you? No plan B. He has one plan. He doesn't even call the one plan plan A because that would indicate there might be a plan B. No, there's no other plan. Just the one. And it is so well organized, it's going to happen. It is happening. It has happened. God is organized. But the Bible teaches an organization spiritual organization that leads to purification. Colossians chapter 2 verse 6 tells us, Therefore, just as you have received Christ Jesus as Lord, so walk in Him, having been firmly rooted and now being built up in Him and established in your faith, just as when you are instructed and overflowing with gratitude. He says, get rooted. Get deep. Get organized. Get your sense of things together as you follow the Lord. Would you quickly flip in your Bibles to the book of Ephesians. We're going to come back and get to number 6 in just a second. But Ephesians chapter 4, beginning about verse 11, gives us again that picture. We've looked at this many times. That picture of the organization, God's organization for His church, His body. He says, beginning in verse 11, Ephesians chapter 4, that he gave some as apostles, and some as prophets, some as evangelists, some as pastors and teachers, all for the equipping of the saints, for the work of service, to the building up of the body of Christ, until we all attain to the unity of the faith and to the knowledge of the Son of God, to a mature man, to the measure of the stature which belongs to, watch this, the fullness of Christ. The fullness. He wants us to have the full deal. The whole picture. Not just a little bit. Salvation gang is not just, is not the only thing God wants for us. For a lot of people, that's enough. I'm saved. 
What else is there? And God says, Oh, there is so much more. So much more if you're willing to step out. If you're willing to go into what He has planned. We've got to be grounded again as believers to stand against every wind of doctrine because there are a lot of funny winds blowing out there today. A lot of confusion, a lot of questions. Just had an email going around just a couple days ago about the, uh, the message. Some of you have seen or heard or read Eugene Peterson's The Message. It's a translation of sorts of the Bible, and now you can buy it in leather, and you can get it just like any other Bible. People are using it in droves, and it, it's a little disconcerting because this is not a translation. It's one guy's kind of view of things, and it's interesting to read, but it's not a literal translation of the Bible. It's one of so many things out there today where, yeah, it could be helpful as a devotional tool, but people are beginning to use it instead of God's Word or in place of God's Word, and and it's dangerous. And there are a lot of things out there right now in the body of Christ that really concern me as as I look around. And I know I'm just getting turning into an old conservative. That's what my family tells me. You're just getting more and more conservative the more you read the Bible. Well, I guess I am. In Numbers chapter 5, which we're going to study on Sunday, we're going to see the work of purification. God organizes His people. There's organization first. And then there's purification that happens in Numbers chapter 5. And the illustration there is fascinating. I'll just give you this much of it. We're going to read about, on Sunday morning, a lie detector test for adultery. Did you know there was one? One that God gives, and it is so bizarre and so fascinating. I mean, I really wanted to look at it tonight, but we'll talk about it Sunday morning. I encourage you to go ahead and go back and read Numbers chapter 5 between now and Sunday and check this out. And husbands, if you want to give it a try, wives, if you want to try it out, uh, no, don't do that. But it's, it's really strange. But it's all about purification. We need to know that after salvation, after organization, purification comes next. And the only reason I mention that tonight is because after purification comes what we're going to talk about in chapter 6. Purification precedes what chapter 6 is all about. This is next level commitment stuff for those who would pursue or desire a deeper walk with God. He provides an opportunity, a way that people could do this in Israel. And it's called the vow of the Nazarite. The vow of the Nazarite. What if you wanted to serve the Lord, but you weren't a Levite? You weren't of the Levitical tribe. You weren't one of the sons of Aaron. You couldn't go into the priesthood. You're just one of the other 11 tribes of Israel. But man, you really want to serve the Lord. I mean, the priest, that's great, but it's handed down in their family line. And I've got a passion for God. I want to serve the Lord. I want to do more than just be one of the gang. What if you were in that place? This is very cool. God provides for those people an opportunity, a way they could go into ministry, a way they could pursue a special relationship of seeking and serving the Lord. And it's by taking the vow of the Nazarite. The vow of the Nazarite. Usually it took, it was about a one month vow. Someone would make the vow and they would stick with it for about a month. That was typical in the day. Paul may have taken that Nazarite vow for a short time. It's interesting, Acts chapter 18 verse 18 tells us that in Sincrea he had his hair cut for he was keeping a vow. Many believe that that was the vow he was keeping. It was a Nazarite vow he took for a period of time. The Nazarite vow sometimes lasted a lot longer, sometimes 8 to 10 years. And we know at least in three instances in the Bible, it was apparently a lifelong calling. Not just a month, not 10 years, but an entire lifetime 
three people mentioned in the Bible Samson is one in the book of Judges around chapter 13, 14 right in there Samson was a Nazarite and he actually was proclaimed a Nazarite before he was even born an angel came to his father Manoah and said hey your, your son he actually came to his wife and she went to her husband and said our son is supposed to be a Nazarite and so from that day forward from his birth on Samson was a Nazarite Samuel is another one we're told about Samuel that he ministered before the Lord now Samuel was of the, of the tribe of Ephraim not of Levi so he wasn't ministering before the Lord as a priest but he ministered before the Lord anyway probably Samuel was a Nazarite and the third guy was John the Baptist John the Baptist may also have been a Nazarite. But what's that mean? What does it mean to be a Nazarite? What's this vow entail? Three specific expectations you'll see tonight. Now, beginning in verse 1. It says again, the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the sons of Israel and say to them, When a man or woman makes a special vow, the vow of a Nazarite, to dedicate himself to the Lord, he shall abstain from wine and strong drink. He shall drink no vinegar, whether made from wine or strong drink, nor shall he drink any grape juice, nor eat fresh or dried grapes, that is, raisins. All the days of his separation he shall not eat anything that is produced by the grapevine, from the seeds even to the skin. So three expectations God has for a Nazarite. He lays them out in this chapter. The first one is a clear-headed determination. A clear-headed determination. That is, no drinking, even to the point of not eating grapes or raisins. Now you're saying, come on, Rick. You can't get drunk on a grape. <laughs> you know, if you can get drunk on raisins, I wouldn't send those cute little boxes with my kids to school. I mean, you can't... Why would those things be added in? Again, God wants the Nazarite to serve Him with a clear mind. And in God's thinking, in His um, program here, He lays out, I don't want you to get close. I don't even want the bottle in the kitchen. I don't even want it nearby. I don't want the opportunity that you could take one of those grapes and make wine from it. I want you completely abstaining, 100% get away from it. Don't even walk near it. Amos chapter 2 verse 11 tells us, I raised up some of your sons to be prophets and some of your young men to be Nazarites. Is this not so, O sons of Israel, declares the Lord? But you made the Nazarites drink wine. And you commanded the prophets, saying, You shall not prophesy. Behold, God says, I am weighted down beneath you as a wagon is weighted down when filled with sheaves. Do our decisions become a heavy weight for God? Apparently they do. Can we actually impact the Lord in such a way? Well, the Bible tells us that we can grieve the Holy Spirit. That our behavior, our actions, our choices can become a weight for God. And so he says, don't even go near it. Isaiah 28 verse 7 tells us the priests and the prophet reel with strong drink. They are confused by wine. They stagger from strong drink. They reel while having visions. They totter when rendering judgment. And Proverbs 31 verse 4 says, it's not for kings, O Lemuel. It's not for kings to drink wine or for rulers to desire strong drink, for they will drink and forget what is decreed and pervert the rights of all the afflicted. Rick, what are you getting at? Are you saying that we should, shouldn't drink? Listen, this is not about legalism here. This is not about prescribing that alcohol is wrong. In fact, you're going to see at the end of the chapter, after the Nazarite fulfills his vow, he can go back to drinking all the wine he wants. Not a problem. The issue here is God is simply declaring that if you want to be used of the Lord, you need to stay sharp. 
You need to be clear-headed. You need to be able to be focused. Leaders in the Lord's organization are to be clear-headed people. And here's the difference between the way God views sin and the way we view sin. We often wonder how close can we get to the line? Box of raisins, you know, clump of grapes, one glass of wine, two, three. Where's the line, Father? Where do I draw it? And God says, draw it this side of the little box of raisins. <laughs> so don't even get close. Why, why do we always try to draw the line as close as we can to sin? And most of us would say, ah, you know what, a glass of wine every now and then, no big deal. It's drunkenness that's the problem. Great, but where do you cross that line? When does just a little drinking become drunkenness? That line is pretty vague, my friends. And God says, if you want to be a clear-headed leader, don't even go close to it, Nazarite. You abstain from it completely. Don't go near it. God would say, stand back so far that you can't even see the line. You just know it's out there somewhere. Monday morning, we have women's Bible study at our house, and, and Cheryl's got all the women there. It's, it's actually a rather frightening time for me being the only man in the house, and there's you know, 15, 20 women in there. And something happened this Monday that I'm going to address to, to the group next Monday. I'm in my office studying, and their Bible study finished, and I hear this little knock on my door. And the door opened, and I won't say who it was, but one of our ladies kind of stepped in and said, Can I ask you something real quick? And I said, Sure. She came in and closed the door behind her. Now, you might think, big deal. My immediate reaction was, Open the door, please. Open the door. Another lady came in a few minutes later. Same thing, knock, knock, knock. Open the door. Had to ask me a question. Came in, closed the door behind her. A third lady did it. And I was talking to Cheryl about it afterwards. You might think, well, big deal, Rick. That's, that, who cares? We have a standard in our, in our family, in our marriage, that says I am never alone with a woman, period. Except for my wife. That's okay. <laughs> I can be alone with her. In fact, that's rather important to the health of our marriage. But I'm never alone. Now, you might say, but Rick, there were all kinds of people in the house. No big deal. They just wanted to have some privacy in talking with you. But gang, you draw the line as far out as possible. I, I don't have any problem talking to the ladies uh, on Monday morning. You know, I know there's a lot of estrogen there. I don't understand it all, but I can still you know, have interaction and talk and answer questions. That's fine. I don't mind that at all. But this, this whole idea of being alone in a place, even when there are people on the other side of the wall, it just unnerves me because I've seen so many pastors fall for that very thing. Like, I don't know if you knew that, but that's the number one reason why pastors fall is sexual sin. I don't want to go near it. I don't even want to know where the line is. I want to be so far back that I can't even find the box of raisins in the cupboard. Do you understand what I'm saying? So step back from that. The point is, I don't want to be close. Well, Nazarite, the Nazarite, the, the word is from the Hebrew Nazir, N-A-Z-I-R, and literally it means a separated one. It's one who is separated completely from, from the typical things. One who separates himself out from sin. Now, this is not to be confused with the word for Nazareth, Jesus' boyhood hometown, Nazareth, that's the Hebrew word netzer, which means branch, totally different thing. This is nazir, meaning a separated one. We have a word for it in our language. We call it holiness. Holiness. To be holy is to be separate, set apart. To be nazir in the Hebrew is the same thing, to be a separated one. And God is saying, if you want to draw near to me of your own free will, 
It's not a legalistic thing. It's not a have to if you have the want to. You want to be closer to me, then you've got to separate yourself as completely as possible and it calls for clear-headed determination. Paul says in Ephesians chapter 5, verse 15, Therefore be careful how you walk, not as unwise men, but as wise, making the most of your time because the days are evil. So then do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is and do not get drunk with wine. That's dissipation. But instead be filled with the Spirit. God would say, man, if you've had that second or third glass of wine, how do you know what you're thinking is my spirit talking to you and you just not going off on a whim? Or put it this way, what if I'm home, I'm with my family, I'm off, I'm not working, I'm not pastoring, and I have a glass of wine or two, or three. And I'm sitting on the couch and I'm relaxed and it's quiet and no big deal and the phone rings and somebody's in crisis. Somebody says, Pastor Rick, I need to come over and talk to you right now. I'll turn, come on over, I'll pick you up and see at the door. <laughs> and I'm not able even to be there, to be clear-headed, to be ready. When the call comes, God says, Nazarite, be clear-thinking. Be clear-headed. Don't do anything that's going to get your brain even the slightest bit fuzzy. I want you sharp as a tack. 1 Thessalonians 5, 4, uh, Paul says, But you, brethren, are not in darkness, that the day would overtake you like a thief. You are all sons of light and sons of day. We're not of night nor of darkness, so then let us not sleep as others do, but let us be alert and sober. For those who sleep, do their sleeping at night, and those who get drunk, do their drinking at night. But since we are of the day, let us be sober, having put on the breastplate of faith and love, and as a helmet, the hope of salvation. What does this say? Gang, if you take this simply as an anti-drinking message, you miss the point. God is not into mystical, mind-altering religion. What this is telling me is I read and I see all these verses and I hear God saying, I want you to be clear thinking. What it tells me is the religion that belongs to God, the pure and undefiled religion of the Lord, is a clear-minded, clear-thinking religion. It does make sense. It is not for those who would, who would want to be out there and be caught up in, in some vagary. They're not even sure what's going on. No, God says, you can be clear. I want you to know me. I want you to understand me. I want you to walk in my will. I'm not sure what God's will is. I'm just floating. No, I, I will tell you my will. I will give you my will. It is for the sharp, open-eyed follower, people who prefer the Bible over a buzz. 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 3, For the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine, but wanting to have their ears tickled, they will accumulate for themselves teachers in accordance with their own desires. They will turn away their ears from the truth. They will turn aside to myths. This is Paul telling Timothy, this will happen. Plan on it. Look for it. This is going to happen in the church. People are going to rather have their ears tickled than hear the truth. They're going to rather have some kind of vague experience than know what the word is. And he says, but you, Timothy, man, you be sober in all things. Endure hardship through the work of an evangelist and fulfill your ministry. A word over the buzz. Now, speaking of a buzz, the next thing for the Nazarite is a full-headed identification. Read on. Verse 5. All the days of his vow of separation, no razor shall pass over his head. He shall be holy until the days are fulfilled for which he separated himself to the Lord. He shall let the locks of his hair on his head grow long. A full-headed identification. What do you mean? In those days, 
I know that the, the popular movies show otherwise, but the reality was in those days, a Jewish man normally cropped his hair. It didn't just grow long naturally. It wasn't the way it was all worn. They would crop their hair short, and God was setting apart the Nazarite to be seen as different. Long hair on a man obviously would mark and identify the Nazarite. Oh, by the way, a woman could be a Nazarite too. Did you know that? Did you read that verse? He said, if a man or a woman wants to dedicate themselves, you can do that. But part of it is you let the hair grow. You don't cut it. You don't crop it. You don't get it short. And so the person who was a Nazarite was obviously a Nazarite. It was the kind of guy who coming through the camp of Israel, you'd see him coming. Oh, he's got long hair. He's not a hippie. He's a Nazarite. Okay? It's long, long before the 60s. And so he would come along, you'd see this, and I want to give you all a challenge here in this following this thinking of the Nazarite, and that's just simply to go on record as being a Christian. To not be afraid as being seen as a follower of Christ. To let your hair down as a Jesus follower. Just to be one who isn't afraid. The people know, hey, they know, that's great, because that's who I am. I'm one of his. I love this verse. Genesis 4.26 tells us to Seth... To him also was born a son, and he called his name Enosh, and then men began to call upon the name of the Lord. Literally, it means, then men were called by the name of the Lord. Seth and his line started to be called by the name of the Lord. You and I are called by the name of the Lord when we're called Christians. Christians. Little Christ is what it literally means. In Antioch, Acts chapter 11, verse 26, we're told the disciples were first called Christians. They bore that name. It was an identity for them. It was an identification that was obvious, and it wasn't to be shirked or shunned. And that's the deal with the Nazarite. Their very look spoke volumes about their commitment. Now, the most famous Nazarite on record is, again, Samson. He was born of the tribe of Dan. Again, not Levi. Born of the tribe of Dan from a father named Manoah and the angel came to his mother and proclaimed the following Judges 13 verse 5 Behold, you shall conceive and give birth to a son and no razor shall come upon his head for the boy shall be a Nazarite to God from the womb So Samson was born They named him Samson His real name in the Hebrew would be Shimshon it doesn't sound quite as tough as Samson, does it? Shimshon Well, Shimshon's name meant sunlight He was their little bright-eyed kid. But he was blessed with great strength from the Lord. But Samson, gang, didn't understand his strength. He didn't get it. He thought the long hair was the strength. He thought that the long hair was his source of strength. That the fact that he had this long hair of the Nazarite, that's where his power came from. He didn't understand that the strength was not in the hair or even in the vow. The strength is the one to whom the vow is made. That's where the power is. David, that's what we were talking about coming in. The power to minister, the power to serve, the power to love, the power to do anything in the name of God is not yours. It's not mine. It belongs to the Lord. Samson didn't understand that. Well, his story is a fascinating one, and we'll get to it someday when we get to Judges. Verse 6, going on. So you have, so far, for the Nazarite, a full-headed identification A full-headed identification. And what was the first one? Clear-headed determination. Excellent. Number three, a dead-headed separation. A dead-headed separation. Verse six. All the days of his separation to the Lord, he shall not go near a dead person. 
He shall not make himself unclean for his father or his mother or for his brother or his sister when they die because his separation to God is on his head. All the days of his separation, he's holy to the Lord. But if a man dies very suddenly beside him and he defiles his dedicated head of hair, then he shall shave his head on the day when he becomes clean. He shall shave it on the seventh day. Then on the eighth day he shall bring two turtle doves or two young pigeons to the priest to the doorway of the tent of meeting. The priest shall offer one for a sin offering, the other for a burnt offering, and make atonement for him concerning his sin because of the dead person. And that same day he shall consecrate his head, and shall dedicate to the Lord his days as a Nazarite, and he shall bring a male lamb a year old for a guilt offering, but the former days will be void because his separation was defiled. A dead-headed separation. God was so serious about this that he said the Nazarite is not to drink wine. The Nazarite is to make sure and just let his hair grow, never cut his hair. And thirdly, the Nazarite is to stay away from dead things. You don't touch anything dead. If a mother or father or brother or sister, even a close family member dies, you don't touch them. You don't engage in what the rest of the family would do in, in the preparation for burial. You don't go there. You stay away from death. Man, because if you're serving the Lord, you are serving for life. Your service is about life. It is not about dead things. And Nazarite was called then to stay away from dead things. Well, what does that mean? Specifically for us, stay away from spiritual life killers. Things that would draw away from your spirituality. Things that would kill your desire to follow the Lord. You may recall that in the case of any Jewish person, that to touch a dead body made one ceremonially unclean. Now, that was a procedure that had to happen. If someone died, you had to touch the body for the burial and everything else. But ceremonially, you were unclean until you went about the right ritual to be clean again. But God declares the Nazarite must have no contact with the dead. For us, application here, ask yourself, are there places I go, or people I hang with, or things that I do that kill my spiritual desire, that bring death to my godly passion? Jesus took it so far, he said, even in the case of family members, as the Nazarite was to stay away from dead things, even family, Jesus said this, Luke 14, 26, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Strong words. Difficult words. I believe I've told you before, but I looked up the word hate in, in the Greek. And the word hate in the Greek that's translated there is literally hate. <laughs> There's no other translation for it. Jesus says unless you hate father, mother, wife, children, brothers, sisters, yes, even your own life, you can't be my disciple. What is he saying? Simply this. That your passion for God is so vast and so intense that even the thing that you love the most, your wife, your kids, yourself, even that which you love the most pales so much in comparison that it would look like hate when compared to the love that you have for Jesus. That's intense. And that's what he wants. That's what he invites us to. A passionate desire, a hunger for him that outshines everything else. A willingness, gang, to give up if you had to. The most precious thing in your life. I'll pick on her for just a minute, but Barb had to do that. She had to do that with her husband. Was it three years ago, four years ago, that Rod had cancer? 
And I didn't ask your permission to share this, but I never ask permission. I just roll ahead. That Rod had cancer and Barb came to a point, a critical point in her faith life where she had to decide, decide could she give up Rod to the Lord? And that was something he was asking of her in that season, to give him up. Allow him to deal with Rod, but for her, would God be enough? And I think that's the question for all of us in any of our lives. I love my wife. I talk about her all the time. I have a lot of fun talking about her up here. You know that. But I love Cheryl. Could I give her up for the sake of Jesus? Could I? Not that he would ask me to. He doesn't want me to. He wouldn't ask any of us to leave a marriage or pull out of that. But could I say that whatever happens in my life to Cheryl, if I were to lose her, I would not lose focus on Jesus because he truly is number one. That's the question. Is there anything in our life that we're not willing to give up? Even family. Even family. And even in the tragedy of a Nazarite, if someone in the family dies, I'm sorry, you've made a commitment to God and He is first, even over the closest people in your life. Now the rest of chapter 6, I was going to just blow through. Something happens here that caught my eye just this afternoon. I'll share it. We're almost done here. Going on verse 13. This is at the fulfillment now of the Nazarite vow, coming to the end of it. It says, Now this is the law of the Nazarite. When the days of his separation are fulfilled, he shall bring the offering to the doorway of the tent of meeting, that is the tabernacle. He shall present his offering to the Lord. Okay, so he's done his commitment, whether it was a month or a matter of years, and now he's coming up to finish it out, and he's presenting an offering. One male lamb, a year old, without defect, for a burnt offering. One ewe lamb, a year old, without defect, for for a sin offering. One ram, without defect, for a peace offering. We studied all those offerings in the beginning of the book of Leviticus, all different offerings with different, different significance to them. A basket, verse 15, of unleavened cakes of fine flour mixed with oil, and unleavened wafers spread with oil, along with their grain offering and their drink offering. And then the priest shall present them before the Lord, and shall offer his sin offering and his burnt offering. He shall also offer the ram for a sacrifice of peace offerings to the Lord, together with the basket of unleavened cakes. The priest shall likewise offer its grain offering and its drink offering. Now watch this. The Nazarite shall then shave his dedicated head of hair at the doorway of the tent of meeting, and take the dedicated hair of his head and put it on the fire which is under the sacrifice of peace offerings. Why is he doing this? After all that time of letting the hair grow, the hair, that symbol of the relationship he had with God, he shaves it all off and takes that hair and dumps it into the fire along with the peace offering. Why? A couple of reasons. Number one, the hair is offered with the peace offering because it symbolized fellowship. It symbolized the fellowship that the Nazarite had with the Lord. That long hair was that symbol of, I am walking with the Lord, I'm putting Him first, I'm serving Him whatever He wants me to do. And now at the end of this, you shave that hair off. And it's interesting, it's with the peace offering. You may recall the peace offering is the one that a man would share with God. They they both got some. God got some of the offering, the man got some of the offering. And the man had to eat the offering right there in fellowship, dining with the Father, having a meal with the Lord. And so this time, he shaves his head and puts the hair in with it because it symbolized that fellowship that was experienced, that blessing that the Nazarite had when he was walking with the Lord during the season of his or her vow. But listen, and remember this, during that season of vow, the Nazarite avoided all things having to do with wine, 
He walked around with long, uncropped hair, and he had nothing to do with dead things. There was a definite look about the Nazarite. He was set apart in a physical sense. People could look and say, he's different. He must be one of those Nazarites. There was a look to it. But, interesting, when the time of the vow was completed, the Nazarite went back to looking like everybody else. Now, this is what caught my attention. Wait a minute. A guy could spend ten years as a Nazarite, and when the vow is completed, he shaves his head? See, I would have thought he'd keep the long hair as a badge of honor. Oh yeah, I was a Nazarite back in the day. And so the Lord, you know, I I grew this long hair and I keep it now to kind of remind people, yeah, I was a Nazarite. I did the Nazarite thing. I had the look. But the Lord says, no. No, when you fulfill your vow, you go back to looking like anybody else. You walk down the street in the tribes of Israel and nobody is going to know that once you were a Nazarite. What's the point of that? The hair gang is offered without a trace because it was worn to the honor of the Lord not to the honor of the Nazarite the whole Nazarite vow was about the experience of God about walking in the glory of the Father it was not about the glory of the Nazarite it wasn't about saying to the rest of Israel look how religious I am look at what I'm doing here I'm serving the Lord I am a Nazarite 1 Corinthians 11.14, Paul says, Does not even nature itself teach you that if a man has long hair, it's a dishonor to him? But if a woman has long hair, it is a glory to her? But listen, in the case of a Nazarite, the hair, the long hair was neither a shame to a man, nor was it a glory to the woman. It was worn simply to the glory of God. It was to God. It was a commitment to the Father. It was about God will, not self will. Now, in the world of the self-will, that long hair would remain. Man, I'd tie that sucker back in a ponytail and walk around proudly showing the world that I accomplished the vow of the Nazarite. I did it. I am now at the next level of righteousness. And you can tell because it all flaps around back there. I carry it everywhere I go, my badge of honor. And God says, no, you shave it off. You offer it up in a peace offering, and it's gone without a trace. Look at verse 19. The priest shall take the ram's shoulder when it has been boiled, and one leavened cake out of the basket, and one leavened wafer, and shall put them on the hands of the Nazarite after he has shaved his dedicated hair. Then the priest shall wave them for a wave offering before the Lord. It is holy for the priest, together with the breast offering by waving, and the thigh offered uh, offered by lifting up, and afterward the Nazarite, here's another interesting thing, may drink wine. Once again, he's right back with the gang. He can drink. He can go home. The next bar mitzvah, he's there, toasting with the rest of the family. It's not a big deal. He can go back to drinking wine. His hair is shaved. He looks like everybody else. You mean to tell me that for all the Nazarite accomplished in that period of his vow, he has nothing to show for it? Exactly. Right. He's got nothing to show for it. He has no trace of what he did. How would you feel if, as a Christian, you achieve some great depth of holiness, you accomplish some wonderful work for the Father, only to look the same way you did when you first believed? Only to walk into a church as an unknown. See, I went through this. I... I worked at a church in California. It was a large church. And as a youth pastor, I achieved quite a bit, or I thought I did anyway. I would would have been considered a successful youth pastor. 
And God said, okay, Rick, now i got something for you. I want you to move your family up to Anacortes and help your brother start a church. So we moved up to Anacortes to help my brother start a church. And guess what? Nobody knew me. Nobody recognized me. Nobody had a clue about all the things that I had worked so hard at that previous church to accomplish. And there was a lot. I had a lot to be proud of. I had a list of things that I had done for the Lord, mind you. My righteousness was obvious for anyone who just wanted to take a peek. And God says, I'm putting you in a place where no one even knows. And that was hard. That was really hard. My ego took a bashing. I honestly don't think the British Christian Fellowship could have been started if I had come directly from that church up to plant this church. Because I think the Lord needed to say, until you're ready to look like everybody else, I can't continue to use you. Here's my point. And I believe this is a key for living for Christ in the church and in the world. Yes, we want to pursue holiness. Yes, we want to keep our vows to the Lord. I like the idea of the Nazarite because God gives three concrete things a person can do to separate themselves out for God. That's wonderful. That's good stuff. But the moment it begins to be about the look, the moment I start to be concerned with how I'm coming off as a righteous Nazarite, God says, I think it's time to shave the head. I think maybe you need to lift a glass of wine. I think maybe you need to back off at the way you look and be like everybody else. You mean sin-wise? No. Okay, not sin-wise. The bottom line is I'm not called to wear my personal righteousness on my sleeve. I'm not called to talk about my holiness, my spiritual accomplishments, my deep commitment to the Father. That's something that, like the Nazarite, I offer it up to Him. I give it to Him. Hebrews 13.15 says, Through Him then, let us continually offer up all the great things we've accomplished for Him. Oh, it doesn't say that. It says, Let us offer up a sacrifice of praise to God. That is the fruit of lips that give thanks to His name. All I've got to show for my walk with Jesus is His grace. All I've got to share with those around me is not my accomplishments, it's His accomplishment. All I really have to say is God loves me. Jesus loves me. And He loves you too. And that's it. And it has nothing to do with what I have or have not accomplished. He just loves me. He loves me as much now as He did the day I was saved. No less, but gang, listen to me, no more think about that Jesus doesn't love me more today than he did on that day which doesn't speak about his love waning it speaks about how great his love was when he when I was saved there's nothing I've done that could add to his love there's nothing that I have accomplished that could make him go man I just I'm just so into Rick now he was into me long before I did anything for him Long after I've accomplished anything He's called me to accomplish, He loves me. He just loves me as I am. I was telling Barb before we started, you know, you can quit the worship team and you could stop coming to the bridge. Rod could resign from the elders and God wouldn't love them any less. I don't want them to do that, but it would make no difference as far as the love of God is concerned. Oh, Rick, that's a dangerous thing to say. People might quit going to church now. I don't think so. 
Because the more you realize how much God loves you, the more you just want to be there. The more serving and ministering, even the idea of a vow to Nazarite, it's wonderful. It's not because of what I'm doing. It's, he loves me so much. I can't help it. I have to be here. Because He's here. I have to share because He loves me. Gang, when it all comes down, I am left with nothing but my experience of the Lord and how much He loves me. Isaiah 64 verse 6 tells us all of us have become like one who is unclean. And all our righteous deeds, all the good things, are like a filthy garment. And all of us wither like a leaf, and our iniquities, like the wind, take us away. But Jesus is so good, so wonderful. My every experience with Him leads me to want to share His goodness, to proclaim His glory. Isaiah 61 verse 10 tells us, I will rejoice greatly in the Lord. My soul will exult in my God, for He has clothed me with the garments of salvation. Compare that. My garments are filthy. My righteous deeds are a filthy garment, but God clothes me with garments of salvation. He wraps me with a robe of righteousness like a bridegroom decks himself with a garland and as a bride adorns herself with jewels. For as the earth sprouts, uh, brings forth its sprouts and as a garden causes the things sown in it to spring up, so the Lord God will cause righteousness and praise to spring up before all the nations. Any good thing that you and I have to offer in this world, it's because of His glory at work in us. And that's the point of the Nazarite. To set themselves apart. To say, God, I want to live for you. I want to experience you. I want to be with you. And when that Nazarite rejoins the rest of the nation, the point is that they have nothing to show for it but the glory and the goodness of God. Verse 21 tells us this is the law of the Nazarite who vows his offering to the Lord according to his separation in addition to what else he can afford according to his vow which he takes so he shall do according to the law of his separation. Father, if you call us to be separated out and if you call us, Lord, to ministry if you call us to a specific task or to some way that we can be of service to you, wonderful Lord, we thank you for the opportunity. Father, would you guard us against wearing our titles and our ministries on our sleeves? Father, may I never be more proud of being a pastor than I am of being your child. Father, may none of our elders walk around claiming special authority because of a title. Father, I pray that you would guard in this church against anyone placing their ministry in a higher place than your glory in our lives. May we just live for you, experiencing you, thrilled by you, and walking with you, Lord, as our primary and singular focus. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.